What's up, nerds? It's been way too long since I've done one of these. There's a lot of cool science out. I apologize for doing this at one o'clock in the morning. Um, it's just one of those moments where I have some free time and I can sit down and go over some of this material. There's finally some news out to go over. Actually, there's been news out and I've just been lazy. I'm just making up excuses. I apologize for that. I'm going to jump into the first article here, which is super interesting. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff today. I'll go over some of the basics, give you guys a little test, a little teaser. It appears that Saturn's rings are due to an ancient missing moon, possibly, uh, risk of multiple climate tipping points, which is not cool. Concerns over doomsday glacier also loom large as well. And the MOXIE experiment on Mars has successfully produced oxygen. That's pretty cool. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to dive into this first one, which is pretty fundamental and pertinent to a lot of Americans these days. And it's called Cravings for Fatty Foods Traced to Gut-Brain Connection. Mouse research revealed that fat sensors in the intestine that stimulate the brain and drive food desires. Uh, A dieter wrestling with cravings for fatty foods might be tempted to blame their tongue. The delicious taste of butter or ice cream is hard to resist, but new research investigating the source of our appetites has uncovered an entirely new connection between the gut and the brain that drives our desire for fat. At Columbia's Zuckerman Institute, scientists studying mice found that fat entering the intestine triggers a signal. Conducted along nerves to the brain, this signal drives a desire for fatty foods. In 2022, in nature, the new study raises the possibility of interfering with this gut-brain connection to help prevent unhealthy choices and address the growing global health crisis caused by overeating. This is presuming that you're assuming that fats are the problem and not sugar. But going on, um, we live in unprecedented times in which the overconsumption of fats and sugars is causing an epidemic of obesity and metabolic disorders. Um, of course, it's the quality of these fats that really matters, guys. Keep that in mind. Um, uh, that was a postdoctoral researcher, Mintong Lee. He goes on to say, if we want to control our insatiable desire for fat, science is showing us that key conduit in these cravings is a connection between the gut and the brain. It's a new, diet, uh, new view of dietary choices and health work from the Zucker Lab on sugar. Researchers found that glucose activates a specific gut-brain circuit that communicates to the brain in the presence of intestinal sugar. Special sweeteners, in contrast, do not have this effect likely explaining why diet sodas can leave us feeling unsatisfied. Our research is showing that the tongue tells our brain what we like, such as things that taste sweet, salty, or fatty. Uh, Dr. Zucker, who is also a professor of biochemistry and molecular biophysics and of neuroscience at Columbia's Vagelos College of Physician Surgeons, says the gut, however, tells our brain what we want. No, we Let's get to the gut of this uh, article here. Even though the animals could not taste the fat, they were nevertheless driven to consume it. The researchers reasoned that fat must be activating specific brain circuits driving the animal's behavioral response to fat. And they wanted to explore how mice carry fats, so the lipids and fatty acids that every animal must consume to provide the building blocks of life. Um, She offered mice bottles of water with dissolved fats, including a component of soybean oil and bottles of water containing sweet substances known not to affect the gut, but are initially attractive. The rodents developed a strong preference over a couple days for the fatty water. 
They formed this preference even when the scientists genetically modified the mice to remove the animal's ability to taste fat using their tongues. Wow. Um, so neurons in the particular region of the brainstem, the caudal nucleus of the solitary tract, or the CNST, perked up. This was intriguing because the CNST was also implicated in the lab's previous discovery of the neural biases of sugar preference. Dr. Lee then found the communications lines that carried the message to the CNST neurons in the vagus nerve, which links the gut to the brain, also twittered with activity when the mice had fat in their intestines. Uh, having identified the biological machinery underlining the mouse preference for fat, Dr. Lee next took a close look at the gut itself, specifically the endothelial cells lining the intestines, and found two groups of cells that sent signals over the vagal neurons in response to fat. One group of cells functions as a general sensor of intestinal nutrients, respond not only to fat, but also to sugars and amino acids. The other group responds only to fat, potentially helping the gut brain distinguish fats from other substances. Dr. Lee then went one important step further by blocking the activity of these cells using a drug, shutting down signaling either group prevented vagal neurons from responding to fat in the intestines. She then used genetic techniques to deactivate either of the vagal neurons themselves, so the neurons in the CNST, or the neurons to de deactivate either the vagal or the neurons in the CNST. In both cases, a mouse, a mouse lost its appetite for fat. Interesting. These interventions verified to each of these uh, verified that each of these biological steps from the gut to the brain is critical for an animal's response to fat. These experiments also provide novel strategies for changing the brain's response to fat and possibly behavior towards food. Creepy. The stakes are high. Obesity rates have nearly doubled. Overconsumption of cheap, highly processed foods rich in sugar and fat is having a devastating impact on human health. We know this. Exciting study, insight, yes, very insightful. So here's a link to the jazz for you dudes in the comment section. And I'll go ahead and take callers if there are any here. Usually I'm just talking to myself. Let's see what happens. Um, yeah, that's just the case. All right, so I'm going to drop this right here and go on to the next one. And let's see. Sorry about the sound effect. Um, <clears throat> this is the interesting one. This is the one I'm really interested in. Um, people generate their own oxidation field and change the indoor air chemistry around them. From September 1st, 2022, Max Planck Institute for Chemistry. People, uh, high levels of hydroxyl radicals, OH, can be generated indoors simply by the presence of people in ozone. People typically spend 90% of their time inside at home, at work, or tr in transport. With these enclosed spaces, occupants are exposed to a multitude of chemicals from various sources, including outdoor pollutants, penetrating indoor gaseous emissions from building materials and furnishings and products of our own activities, such as cooking and cleaning. In addition, we are ourselves potent mobile emission sources of chemicals that enter the indoor air from our breath and skin. But how the chemicals, how do the chemicals disappear again? In the atmosphere outdoors, this happens to a certain extent naturally by itself when it rains and through chemical oxidation of hydroxyl radicals that are largely responsible for this chemical cleaning. Uh, these very reactive molecules are also called the detergents of the atmosphere, and they are primarily, 
primarily formed when UV light from the sun interacts with ozone and water vapor. Indoors, on the other hand, the air is, of course, far less affected by direct sunlight and rain. Since UV rays are largely filtered out by glass windows, it has been generally assumed that the concentration of OH radicals is substantially lower indoors than outdoors, and that ozone leaking in from outdoors is the major oxidant of indoor airborne chemical pollutants. Um, this is hydroxyl radicals are formed from ozone and skin oils. Wow. However, it's been discovered that high levels of hydroxyl radicals can be generated indoors simply due to the presence of people in ozone. It's been shown by a team led by the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry and cooperation with researchers from the USA and Denmark, the discovery that we humans are not only a source of reactive chemicals, but we're also able to transform these chemicals ourselves was very surprising to us. Uh, first author of the study published in Magazine Science and now at the Institute of Atmospheric Sciences and Climate in Bologna, Italy. <laughs> Bologna, Bologna, Italy. The strengthening of the oxidation field were determined by how much ozone is present, where it, and how the ventilation of the indoor space is configured. The levels scientists found were even comparable to outside daytime hydroxide concentration levels. The oxidation field is, is it hydroxide I'm talking about? Hydroxyl. I apologize. Hydroxyl. Um, yes. Experiments were conducted at the technical. Oxidation field is generated by the reaction of ozone with oils and fats on our skin, especially the unsaturated, uh, triterpene squalene, which consists, constitutes about 10% of the skin lipids that protect our skin and keep it supple. The reaction re releases a host of gas phase chemicals containing double bonds that react further in the air with ozone to generate substantial levels of hydroxyl radicals. These squalene degradation products were characterized in quantified mass spectrometry and ga fast gas chromatography, uh, Fast gas chromatograph chromatomath mass spectrometry systems. Chromatograph mass spectrometry systems. Okay, gotcha. In addition, the total hydroxyl reactivity was determined in parallel, enabling the hydroxyl levels to be quantified empirically. Experiments were conducted at the Technical University of Denmark in Copenhagen. Four test subjects stayed in special climate controlled chambers. Under standardized conditions, ozone was added to the chamber air inflow in a quantity that was not harmful to humans, but representative of higher indoor levels. The team determined the OH values before and during the volunteer stay, both with and without ozone present. In order to understand how the human-generated hydroxyl field looked like in space and time during the experiments, results from a detailed multi-phase chemical kinetic model from the University of California, Irvine, were combined with computational fluid dynamics model from Pennsylvania State University, both based in USA. After validating the models against the experimental results, model modeling team explained how the human-generated hydroxyl field varied under different conditions of ozone. Beyond those tested in the laboratory, from the results, it was clear that hydroxyl radicals were present, abundant, and forming strong spatial gradients. Our modeling first, and currently the only group that can integrate chemical processes between the skin and indoor air from molecular scales to room scales. And the model makes sense of the measurements, why hydroxyl is generated from the reaction with the skin. Um... 
We need to rethink indoor chemistry in occupied spaces because the oxidation field we create will transform many of the chemicals in our immediate vicinity. Hydroxyl can oxidize many more species than ozone, creating a multitude of products directly in our breathing zone with yet unknown health impacts. This oxidation field will also impact chemical signals we emit and receive and possibly help explain the recent finding that our sense of smell is generally more sensitive to molecules that react faster with hydroxyl. New finding also has implications for our health. Currently, chemical emissions of many materials and furnishings are being tested in isolation before they're approved for sale. However, it'd be advisable to conduct tests in presence of people in ozone, says atmospheric chemist Williams. This is because oxidation processes can lead to the generation of respiratory ir irritants such as 4-oxopentanol and other OH uh, hydroxyl radical generated ox oxygenated species and small particles in the immediate vicinity of the respiratory tract. These can have adverse effects, especially in children and the infirm. These findings are part of a project of Indoor Chemical Human Emissions Reactivity Project. And I've got a link for you guys right here. We'll do one more and then we'll go to bed. Um, okay. Let's see what else is new. Um, mm -mm. Sorry about the stupid sound effects. Um, of course, a new study links ultra-processed foods and colorectal cancer in men. No surprise there. Beyond AlphaFold, AI excels at creating new proteins. It's pretty cool. Let's check this out. How machine learning can accelerate solutions for protein design challenges. Over the last two years, machine learning has revolutionized protein structure prediction. Now that three papers in science describe similar revolution in protein design. In new papers, biologists at the University of Washington School of Medicine show that machine learning can be used to create protein molecules more accurately and quickly than previously possible. Scientists hope this advance will lead to many new vaccines, treatments, tools for carbon capture, and sustainable biomaterials. Proteins are fundamental across biology, but we know all proteins are found in every plant, animal, and microbe make up far less than 1% of what's possible. With these new software tools, researchers could be able to find solutions to long-standing challenges of medicine, energy, and technology. Um, proteins are often referred to as building blocks of life because they're essential for the structure and function of all living things. They're involved in virtually every process that takes place inside cells, including growth, division, and repair. Proteins are made up of long chains of chemicals called amino acids. The sequence of amino acids and proteins determines its three-dimensional shape. This intricate shape is crucial for the protein to function. Recently, powerful machine learning algorithms, including AlphaFold and Rose TTAFold, have been trained to predict the detailed shapes of neural proteins based solely on their amino acid sequences. Machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence that allows computers to learn from data without being explicitly programmed. Machine learning can be used to model complex scientific pro uh, problems that are too difficult for humans to understand. To go beyond the proteins found in nature, Baker's team members broke down the challenge of protein design into three parts and used new software solutions for each. First, the new protein shape must be generated in a paper published, must be generated. In a paper published July 21st, Journal of Science, the team showed an artificial intelligence can generate new protein shapes in two ways. First, hallucination is akin to DAL-E or other generative AI tools that produced output based on simple prompts. The second, dubbed N-painting, is analogous to the autocomplete feature found in modern search bars. Interesting. 
Second, to speed up the process, the team devised new algorithm for generating amino acid sequences. Described in the September 15th issue of Science, a software tool called Protein MPNN runs about one runs in about one second. Oh wow! It's more than 200 times faster than previous uh, best software. Best software. It results in superior prior tools, and the software requires no expert customization to run. Neural networks are easy to train if you've had a ton of data, but with proteins, we don't have as many examples as we would like. So we had to go in, identify which features of these molecules are the most important. It was a bit of a trial and error. Um, third, the team used AlphaFold, a tool developed by Alphabet's DeepMind. Oh, independently assess whether the amino acid sequences they came up with were likely to fold into the intended shapes. Software for predicting protein structures is part of the solution, but it can't come up with anything new on its own. Uh, protein MPNN to protein design. What AlphaFold <clears throat> was to protein structure prediction. Okay. In another paper appearing in Science September 15th, a team from the Baker Lab confirmed the combination of the new machine learning tools could re reliably generate new proteins that functioned in the laboratory. We found that proteins made using protein MPNN were much more likely to fold up as intended, and we could create very complex protein assemblies using these methods. Among the new proteins, we made a nanoscale ring that the researchers believe could become a part for custom nanomachines. Electron microscopes were used to observe the rings, which have di diameters roughly a billion times smaller than a poppy seed. Unfucking fathomable. Um, this is the very beginning of a machine learning and protein design. In the coming months, we'll be working to improve these tools to create even more dynamic and functional proteins. Um, fucking amazing. Jesus Christ. Computers are smart. Well, my crush just sent me a message, guys. Perfect timing. I got to get out of here. Um, I hope you guys have a beautiful and equally romantic night. And here is that last article. Oh. There's that one, and then there's actually the last article right here. Boom. That's all three. I hope you guys learned something. I found that incredibly interesting. Wow, we really knocked out a lot of science in 18 minutes. So I hope you all totally enjoyed that, and y'all stay wise.